Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's really, really good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Joe, uh, and I'm going to be continuing our elementary series that was started last week looking at baptism. Um, and apparently it was a complete coincidence with the dates, but um, obviously I am uh, have a really helpful visual aid, um, and you've already seen one, so I could just go. But anyway, um, so John started off this series last week looking at repentance and faith. Um, and if you missed that one or you haven't had a chance uh, to listen yet, then do go back and catch up with that one. Um, so baptism today, and we're talking here about water baptism. So if you were brought up in a Christian home, or you've been around church for a while, seeing people being baptized is probably something you're quite used to, uh, and perhaps you take it for granted. And maybe it reminds you, as, as Dave was asking us to share, something of your own baptism and your own journey of faith. Um, if you're not a Christian, or perhaps you're visiting us just for this morning, um, then you are very, very welcome. Uh, and I'm hoping to shed some light on this peculiar practice we have as Christians, uh, so what it is and why we do it. So firstly, why do we baptize people in water? Well, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28 from verse 16, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the word baptize used here in this passage uh, comes from the Greek, Greek word uh, that the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word here means to immerse or to overwhelm something with water. And across the ages, different church traditions have come to different understandings and have baptized people in different ways. So you may be familiar uh, with the practice of some churches who baptize babies or infant children with a sprinkling of water. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, when we lived in Brighton on the south coast, we had the pleasure of being present at a baptism in the sea, uh, which was very dramatic, watching someone being submerged under crashing waves. Needless to say, that was an adult. Um, the... <laughs> The Didache is a document from the early church. Now, this isn't part of the Bible, uh, and we wouldn't receive it as being at all prescriptive, but it sheds some light on some of the ways baptism was thought about by some in the early church. Um, and it says in chapter 7, Now concerning baptism, baptize as follows. After you have reviewed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other water. And if you're not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm. How was it today? <laughs> Lukewarm, that's okay. But if you have neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And before the baptism, let the one baptizing and the one who is to be baptized fast, as well as any others who are able. Also, you must instruct the one who is to be baptized to fast for one or two days beforehand, but do not let your fasts coincide with those of the hypocrites. They fast on Monday and Thursday, so you must fast <laughs> on Wednesday and Friday. Apologies to anyone who happened to fast on Monday or Thursday this week. Um, but needless to say, there is a long and complex history of baptism in the church. Uh, and sadly, there have been times with no love lost between opponents, and there have been some tragic results um, from that. But in our own tradition here at Gateway Church in York, uh, baptism is something we have settled on doing uh, with people who have made the profession of repentance and faith that John unpacked for us last week. Uh, and we baptize here uh, by full immersion into water, um, as you've seen this morning. So this is an ancient ritual 
in the church. It bonds the Christian community to one another and to the God revealed in Jesus. And practically, it's about the public identification of someone as a follower of Jesus, of someone who has in faith repented of their sin and turned to put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. So as a public identification, it's a petition, it's a pledge, and it's a pointer. So firstly, it's a petition, by which I mean it's an open declaration from the person being baptized that they wish to be numbered among God's people. Hello, church, I want to join you. As a result of coming to an understanding of who God is and his great work of salvation in Jesus, I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. And we can see an example of this in the Old Testament. And I'm sorry about returning uh, already to the time of Judges so soon. But in the book of Ruth, which if you haven't read, you should know, it's a wonderful story of love, loyalty, and redemption. It's one of my favorites. Anyway, in the book of Ruth, after some tragic losses for the whole family, Ruth petitions to remain with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and speaks the famous words, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And similarly, baptism is a public petition to the church at large. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Secondly, it's a pledge, by which I mean it's a public pledge of allegiance to one God in one faith in praise of him. So Ephesians 4 verse 4 says, There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And in baptism, there is a public pledge of allegiance to this one God, the Father, one Lord Jesus and one Spirit in one faith. So it's a petition and it's a pledge. And then thirdly, it's a pointer, an indication to everyone else that someone has joined the Christian church. Now, the way we do things, that person may have been part of this church family for some time, as we've heard, uh, through links with their family or relatives, but it's a pointer for us that they have made the move to progress their journey of faith for themselves. They belong to Christ, and they belong to among us by their own repentance and faith. So those are the practical workings of baptism. It's a petition, a pledge, and a pointer to publicly identify someone as a follower of Jesus. But there are also some deeper spiritual and theological realities at play as well. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn now to Romans chapter 6, and it will come up on the screen as well. Um, And I'll be reading verses 1 to 11. This is Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, 
we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we're going to focus on those three things, being dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. So firstly, dead to sin. What does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, we read in verses 3 and 4 that we have been baptized into the death of Christ and buried with him. As the one being baptized goes down into the water, it pictures death, and submersion under the water pictures burial. So we are dead to sin because we died with Christ. This isn't just an imitation of a sinless example that Jesus set us, but it's a reality of our union with him. If you're a Christian this morning, in terms of our standing before God, Jesus died the death we deserve for our sin, and we were there with him. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. On the cross, Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice in our place, being a perfect union of God and human, and having lived a perfect life without any sin, he was perfectly suited to represent us in our humanity before God in his divinity. For the Christian, your union with Christ means that positionally, you were there with him at the crucifixion. Your debt of sin was paid for on the cross. If you're not a Christian, perhaps you're just visiting us this morning, God in love has made a way for you to find life and freedom in him by coming to the cross of Jesus to have your sins forgiven, your spirit made alive, and new life to be found in abundance in relationship with him. Colossians 2 verse 12 says that we were buried with him in baptism. So Jesus was buried in the tomb for three days. He was definitely, fully, and completely dead. Some other religions and philosophies you may have heard suggest that he didn't really die or that his death wasn't literal but had a more mystical, figurative meaning. But the fact he was buried expresses an ongoing mortification. He didn't just get sick or get close to the end. He was dead and buried. And we died with him and were buried with him And we see this in baptism, going down into the water. Verse 6 of our Romans passage says that we know our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with or brought to nothing, as other translations have it, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So where it says anyone who has died, we can see from the context and the line of Paul's argument here that he's referring to anyone who has died with Christ, as we've said previously. Anyone who has died with Christ through baptism has been set free from sin. This doesn't mean that we don't ever sin anymore. Amen? Anyone? Um, Or don't feel the effects of sins committed against us. But rather that we are no longer under the reign of sin. Sin is no longer our master enslaving us. We've been set free from slavery to sin. So there's a parallel here between baptism, representing us being set free from sin, 
and the crossing of the Red Sea for the Israelites back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. So as God delivered the people of Israel from slavery under their Egyptian oppressors in the time of Moses by miraculously parting the Red Sea for them to escape across to begin a pilgrimage to the promised land, so too for us with baptism in water, we begin our Christian pilgrimage through the rest of our lives following him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 puts it this way, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, so that's the Israelites with Moses, were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea, referring to the parting of the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. In other words, as Israel crossing the Red Sea was a kind of baptism that delivered them from slavery to the Egyptians, so now our Christian baptism delivers us from slavery to sin. Because back in verse 10 now of Romans 6, the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, referring to once for all time. There is no ongoing need for sacrifice. Christ died once for the past, present, and future sins for all who are in him. All from the Old Testament and the time before Christ, uh, who looked forward with faith to God's coming salvation, and all of us since who look back with faith to the cross. He died to sin once for all. Taking sin upon himself, he died to destroy its power. So if we are in Christ, we can count ourselves dead to sin. Next, we're alive to God. So verse 4 again says, As Christ was raised from the dead. So here we have the emergence from the water in baptism, without which death would obviously occur. Submergence under the water is only half the story. The death of Christ is only half the story because after three days in the tomb, Jesus was raised from the dead. Back to Matthew 28, we read, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, there were a number of Marys, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Lad. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And so the stone was rolled back from the tomb, and Jesus was raised from the dead. And in the same way, we too may live a new life, pictured in our emergence from the water in baptism. Christ was raised from the dead, says Romans, by the glory of the Father, now, that's a peculiar phrase, something we can easily gloss over. But let's just pause here for a minute to think about this, the glory of the Father. 
So the glory of something describes what it's made of. And biblically, it has to do with heaviness, weight, and radiance. It's the beauty of something and can be used to describe what someone most treasures. For God, it describes his nature and his character radiating outwards. And there's, there's a Trinitarian aspect to this. So as Christians, we believe in the Trinity, uh, in one God who exists eternally as three persons, as Father, Son, and Spirit. The one God is a Father loving and giving life to his Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And just as for all eternity, God the Father has been giving life to his Son by the Holy Spirit. At the resurrection of Jesus, that same glory of the Father, the self-giving overflow of his life and love, breathed life into the body of Jesus in the tomb by the power of the Holy Spirit, vindicating his perfect sacrifice in full obedience to the will of God. He was raised immortal and imperishable. Verse 8 says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So we too may live a new life. This means we are no longer under sin, but under grace. We have a new master, which means we begin to desire to obey God. Not begrudgingly, but from the heart. So Titus 3, from verse 3, says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, and John talked about that last week, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We have forgiveness of sins. We are counted as righteous. We have the grace of the Holy Spirit for newness of life. The 11th century Archbishop of Canterbury, known as St. Anselm of Canterbury, uh, meditating on these things, he wrote this. Christian soul, brought to life again out of the heaviness of death, redeemed and set free from wretched servitude by the blood of God, rouse yourself and remember that you are risen. Realize that you have been redeemed and set free. Consider again the strength of your salvation and where it is found. Meditate upon it. Delight in the contemplation of it. Shake off your lethargy and set your mind to thinking over these things. What then is the strength and power of your salvation and where is it found? Christ has brought you back to life. And uh, personally, I think it's a shame that there aren't more people writing like that anymore. Um, anyway, so in baptism, we are to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And now thirdly, in Christ Jesus. So verse 5 of our Romans passage says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So this again is about our union with Christ. When we are baptized into Christ... We are united to him. 
This is a fundamental change of identity as we identify with Christ and he identifies with us as an ongoing living participation and incorporation into his body, the church. So Galatians uh, chapter 3 verse, 20, uh, verse 27 sorry, says, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This means that as Jesus is the eternal Son of God, we too are now recognized before God as sons of God. Now being called a son of God here, it isn't about gender. Uh, the passage in Galatians goes on to say that there is no male or female in Christ, but all are one. Uh, in other words, there's no hierarchy inferred here between men and women being called sons. Uh, this is about our joint identity of being united with Christ, who is the Son of God. This, <laughs> this is massive, and it never fails to stare me. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and we are in Christ, which means that what God the Father has spoken over Jesus, he has spoken over us. So when Jesus himself was being baptized and he saw the heavens opened and heard the voice of the Father saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. If you were in Christ, then you were with Christ and God the Father spoke these words over you. You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And walking in this new identity is about putting off the old humanity and putting on the new one. As we've said before, we died with Christ, so we will also live with him. Colossians 3 from verse 9, speaking of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. It says, you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator which means that there is a sense in which we share in Jesus' resurrection in the present. And that's what it means to become genuinely human. So in baptism, in, in the submersion underwater and immersion from the water, we have a picture of the cross and resurrection. And we're to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus because of our union with Christ. Our crucifixion with Christ and resurrection with Christ needs to be the lens through which we see our whole life because we're living in an interval, the time between Jesus' resurrection and our own. And during this inter interval, we must continue to resist the old ways that lead to death. But particularly for anyone visiting this morning, if, if perhaps you have the impression that a Christian way of life, Christian ethics and moral teachings are in some way constraining or limiting a person, I want to stress that the demands of the Christian life are not a denial of what it means to be human. And we've heard some really powerful testimony to that this morning. They're, they're a reaffirmation of God's good creation. So New Testament scholar... Tom Wright, who is more eloquent than me, uh, says this, the resurrection of Jesus enables us to see how living as a Christian is neither a matter of discovering the inner truth of the way the world currently is, nor a matter of learning a way of life that is in tune with a totally different world, and thus completely out of tune with the present one. It is a matter of glimpsing that in God's new creation, of which Jesus' resurrection is the start, 
all that was good in the original creation is reaffirmed. All that has corrupted and defaced it, including many things which are woven so tightly into the fabric of the world as we know it that we can't imagine being without them, all that will be done away. Learning to live as a Christian is learning to live as a renewed human being, anticipating the eventual new creation with a world which is still longing and groaning for that final redemption. Sin has been dethroned, but still tries to exercise rule over us. But nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Because we are in Christ, God is for us. Romans 8, from verse 31, and I'll finish with this. It says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So let's pray. Father, we love seeing people baptised and reminding ourselves of your great work of salvation. We thank you that in Christ we can count ourselves dead to sin and alive to you. Help us to resist the old ways and to walk in the light of the truth that Christ is risen and Christ will come again and to know your presence with us day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.